he, that is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, uh, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning, we come not to hear men speak. We come not to sing for man. We come, Lord Jesus, to hear you speak, to know the power, the joy, the peace that only comes when you speak a word to us. So speak, O Lord, we pray. Have mercy on us in the preaching of the word and give us ears to hear. May we turn from unbelief to belief. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Can you remember a favorite birthday gift? Or maybe a favorite Christmas gift? Perhaps it was a favorite toy that you had got. I know children, when you get a favorite toy, where does that toy go? Everywhere. Right? It comes with you just about everywhere. What about a favorite album that you listen to, a music album, to be clear? Where is that album now? How often is it on your favorite playlists? Things that once dazzled us in our lives, over time, lose their shine. That which is once dazzling in time becomes dull to us. People are prone to take something that is fantastic and make it quite uninteresting in just a bit of time. Our favorite gifts or toys or albums or cars or phones or friendships or even marriages or even faith systems become dull, common, yesterday's news and almost next to no time at all. The thing that we once believed had value and beauty and was interesting and there was satisfaction in it goes away. Our belief is replaced with what seems to be unbelief. And this is where that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, somewhat comes in or where it comes from. That thing you were once amazed by, the, the thing you once liked, now you don't like. You're now unamazed by. G.K. Chesterton, uh, that Brit, uh, he speaks of children being less like this when they are young because children are so often full of life and naivety and they're often less cynical. He says that uh, they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, children want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. 
and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people, he says, for grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt, that's to, to celebrate or to uh, take delight in monotony, something done over and over again, something that you have every day. End quote. It's true, grown-up and growing-up people are more often given to unbelief, to skepticism, to doubt. Even if we would happen to say, no, I believe this, or even since I was a child, I've been a Christian, if someone came closer and looked at your life, would they find a lack of celebrating, a lack of taking delight in that faith system that maybe once was interesting and amazing and exciting? In truth, many of us live with a functional atheism, where our faith is confined to the hours of a Sunday morning. But as one dear, dear friend said to me once, Ben, outside of that hour, I don't think about the Lord even once during the week. Not in work, not in play, not in conflict. It's unsurprising that that man is walking away from his faith. Perhaps you relate to this this morning. There's good news for you. There's a God who no matter how familiar he becomes with your life, which he is fully, he never loses interest. God is not like man in this way. Perhaps for you this morning, you relate to none of what I describe in terms of faith because perhaps you've never found Christianity dazzling. Perhaps you've never been amazed by this Jesus Christ. And now is the moment today to not harden your heart in hearing about him. See, this text today calls you and I to reject unbelief not Jesus, to reject unbelief, not Jesus. And this will be shown in that Jesus's mission cannot be stopped by rejection. It can't be stopped by rejection of, uh, or rejection by those who should be first to believe. And even furthermore, it's a mission that will be advanced by the imperfect, can't even be stopped by them. Well, see, over the last three Sundays, we have unequivocally seen that Jesus is Lord, over nature, right, the wind and the sea, over the supernatural, over legions of demons. And then last week we saw he's the Lord of life, right? He is a kind God to hopeless causes. Mark has made it clear, he's the Lord, no questions asked. And this should convince any man, woman, and child to trust in Jesus Christ. And so, as Jesus' mission now takes him home to Nazareth, what might we expect? A warm welcome? Overflowing belief? But you see, when Jesus goes to the town that he's named after, Jesus of Nazareth, what he finds is an overflow of unbelief, a town that largely rejects him. But Jesus' mission cannot be stopped by rejection. No, it can't be stopped even by those who should be the first to believe in him. So if you look back with me at the text, verses 1 and 2, What do we find? Jesus returns with his 12 disciples to his hometown, and he does what he's been doing all throughout Mark, right? He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, because that's where people go to worship on the day of the Lord. (laughs) They go and they worship in the synagogue, and so Jesus goes to teach. And if we remember the pattern, he teaches, people are amazed, and then they come to get healed and be freed from demons. And it would seem almost that that is about, uh, is what to happen here in this text, Look at people are astonished, it says. But lean in. What kind of astonishment is it? See their questions in verse 2. Where did this man get these things? Where, what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? 
In other words, how does Jesus know what he knows or teach with any kind of wisdom? And how is it possible that he's done the things that we've heard about? These are legitimate questions. They saw Jesus grow up. Where have these things come from, right? But we should get the sense that they're not asking questions they want the answer to. Instead, their questions are actually meant to discredit or disdain. The man that they know, they call him not Jesus. They say, this man. Where does this man? They know this person, and yet they distance themselves from him immediately. And they continue, verse 3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? They likely don't name the sisters because they're, they're probably married. Now, carpentry, as Jesus had done following in his father's footsteps, was fine work. It was not necessarily shameful work by any means. But to be a carpenter is to not be a rabbi. Jesus is a manual laborer. Jesus is blue collar. To be a rabbi means, or to teach in this way, you would have had to get extensive teaching. You would have needed to have been an apprentice to a rabbi. That is not who Jesus is. So they add to this, Son of Mary is what they call him here. And they name his brothers and sisters. Now, sons in this culture are always to be named by who? Or according to who? In relation to who? The fathers, right? To name Jesus as son of Mary is actually likely meant as an insult to Jesus. As if he were an illegitimate child. As if he had no father. Now, it's possible that those, the rumors of, of Mary right, being pregnant before she married Joseph have, have come to Nazareth. It's not clear necessarily here. And, and Mark doesn't record the birth. He's one of the only Gospels that don't record that the birth. Uh, also, uh, John does not. But either way, what they are doing here is they're saying, we know you, Jesus. We know who you are. You are no better than us. And look at verse 3. It says, they took offense, offense at him. The Greek word for offense is scandalizo. Sounds like the word scandalize in English, and it is. That's where we get our word scandalized from. They feel scandalized by Jesus in, in what he is doing. And this is meant to be a contrast. This is meant to be ironic and strange, right? These people who know Jesus, and in light of, in light of what Mark just said, right? Jesus is Lord, nature, supernatural, life and death. And he shows up here in his hometown, the people who should be the first to believe, and they have contempt for him. They reject him wholly. Now, if it were us, we might respond the way that uh, James and John do in Luke. At, when they are in a town and, and the people reject him, they say, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to consume them? And Jesus doesn't do that there. Uh, maybe someday he will. Uh, Revelation tells us that. But, but how does Jesus respond here? Almost everywhere else, when Jesus taught, the people marveled. There was some level of belief as they came to get something from Jesus. But who marvels here? Jesus does. Jesus marvels at their unbelief. This is the contrast to everything else we've seen in Mark. In verse 5, it says that he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, later in Mark, uh, and we'll get to this passage, a man comes to Jesus with a, a demon-possessed son, and he says, if you can, heal my son. And Jesus, it's one of these times that we wonder what Jesus' tone was, because Jesus says, if you can, exclamation point. All things are possible for the one who 
believes. Jesus has the power to heal anybody. Jesus has the power over any single demon in the entire world. This is not a matter of Jesus having an inability, that he doesn't have the power to do it. Jesus has made that clear. But it's that unbelief cannot receive what only belongs to belief. Jesus cannot, will not, could not give to them what they refuse to, do, to believe in him for. I have a, a dear childhood friend that every time we meet and we, we speak, we, we end up talking about the Lord, which is so wonderful. Um, but he often says to me, yeah, I just don't believe in him. But if he gave me a sign, then I would. Do you see how ironic that is? To champion unbelief in one moment, but then say, but if you gave me a sign, then I'd believe. Jesus will not give to him what his unbelief refuses to receive, especially when you live in a world where everything is given to you by God. It shouts that God made you. Verse 4, Jesus says, though, why they don't believe. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his, and in his own household. They're not, they're not impressed because they know Jesus. They know where he grew up and they refuse to see him as better than they are. Have you ever watched a sunrise? Have you ever watched a, a sunset? Or stared up at the, the sky on a, on a clear night? You, know, you looked at the stars? Have you ever stood at the, uh, the foot of the mountains? Just awe-inspiring, right? M- majesty, brilliance, the magnitude. We're stunned when we stand before those things. And yet, I know you didn't watch it probably this morning, but the sun did rise. And it was beautiful. But another day, another dollar, the monotony of life lulling you to fail to see that once, what once was dazzling is still dazzling, though you might find it dull. And the thing that's amazing is that the sunrise hasn't become less beautiful. The stars are not less bright. The mountains are not less majestic than yesterday. But what changes are not those things. What changes is you. It's you that changes. What I mean by that is what is wrong with us, or what is wrong is not with them, but with us and with our very hearts. G.K. Chesterton picks up that quote Uh, or he ends it, I should say, in this way. He says, God, though, God is strong enough to exult, to take delight in, monotony. He says, it's possible that every morning God says to the sun, do it again. And And every evening that God says to the moon, do it again. God's familiarity with all that he has made, especially you, does not breed dullness in him towards you. God is not less interested in you the more he knows you, and he knows you perfectly. God is not like us. We here need to understand that the effects of our sinful nature is that we turn everything beautiful into something bland. And we do this especially with Jesus Christ. We begin to have disdain or dislike for that which we know. God remains beautiful, just as beautiful as yesterday. And yet we began to be bent towards unbelief, just like the hearts in Nazareth. Now, the ironic thing for those in Jesus' hometown, his family, is that they despise Jesus for the exact thing they need him to be. 
He needs to be made like them in every way, Hebrews 2 says, in order to save them. And they despise him for it. They despise Jesus because he is like them. They hate him and find him dull and call him only a man and not a promised savior. And we can do the same. And seeing Jesus only as a man who perhaps has some rules for us rather than a savior who came because he loves us. Perhaps this is your experience if you grew up or grew up uh, in the church or near the church or are growing up in the church. You are someone who maybe hears the news and you should be the first to believe. You can think, sure, Jesus is God in the flesh. He came to die for my sins. I can go to heaven and be with him. I have heard that before. Yesterday's news. You dislike or are uninterested in Jesus because you think of him only as a man or only as a religious system and not as someone to know, as someone to worship, not someone to be loved or known by. If this is you, if this describes you, do not be marveled or do not be amazed rather if Jesus marvels at your unbelief. Instead of this, we are this morning to reject unbelief, not Jesus. We reject unbelief by loving what they hate about Jesus. We love that he became a man like us. We love that we can be familiar with this Christ who came. They took it personal and hated him. We can take it personal and believe and love him because he was made like us that he might save us. When you sense the message growing dull, which we all do. This happens. This is our sinful nature moving us this way. You must acknowledge that the problem is not the message or the God-man, but it's you. The problem is in me and you, not in the triune God. So by God's grace, reject unbelief due to sin, due to what you think is familiar and boring over time, and instead believe in Jesus Christ, knowing that his power, his beauty, his glory, and his love for you has not diminished. And it's just as dazzling as it was on day one. Well, in verses uh, 7 to 13, we look at uh, the second section of our text. We find the same truth emphasized, right? Jesus' mission is still going forth. It will not be stopped by rejection. But he will even use terribly imperfect people to complete it. Now, we think on the disciples and the apostles in high standing. We, We should. We really should. Uh, The church exists in the world today on account of what Jesus chooses to do through these 12 men. But at this point in Mark, that is not who they are yet, right? (laughs) The disciples are somewhat the punching bag. And uh, and granted, give it to them, right? They're the ones who uh, help to write down these gospels. This is Peter's gospel through Mark. He's not hiding or pulling any punches. He's, He's saying this is him. There is a debate, though, often of when the disciples really believe. Because the Bible doesn't really tell us, right? We know they received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost or, or just before that, rather, at least in, in a fuller way in terms of so they can do ministry. But I believe it's actually a grace to us that we don't have some point of conversion for the disciples. It should comfort us because, frankly, we look a lot like them. In one moment, we say, yes, Jesus, I'll come follow you. I'll leave it all behind. And then the next minute, we're in a storm and we're yelling at Jesus, don't you care if I die? Or when Jesus asks a question, we get exasperated. We're like, Jesus, everyone's touching you, as we saw a few weeks ago. The disciples are a mess. But with the exception of Judas Iscariot, 
It'd be foolish to think that they haven't at some level believed in Jesus. They have followed him, even if they don't understand in, in full who he is yet, or that their lives still have unbelief mixed through it. Jesus chooses these imperfect ones all the same, and he sends them out two by two. Now, the emphasis upon the two is not just because Jesus thinks you need a buddy, though you do. It's not for that reason. It's actually so that they will, uh, it's rather to validate their preaching, their testimony of who Jesus is, as well as the warnings that they are giving to these towns. In Old Testament law, in Deuteronomy, it emphasizes that only the witness of two would be able to substantiate a testimony. You always need two to substantiate a testimony. And the aim in Deuteronomy was uh, for them, for two people to give testimony. Why? Against some evil that's happened, so that they would purge the uncleanness from the land. That was the aim in Deuteronomy. Well, notice, what are they doing here? What kind of spirits does it say? I think in verse 8, is it perhaps? Or perhaps it's still 7? They are going out. They're receiving authority and power from Jesus in order to purge unclean spirits. And, in a moment we'll see, the uncleanness of unbelief. That's what they're going out to do. Verses 8 through 10, if you look there, Jesus commands uh, what not to take with them, but to accept the hospitality of whoever will receive them. They travel light with only four things. There's four things either said or implied there. There's a staff. They have a belt. Nothing in it, but they have a belt. Sandals and only one tunic. One commentator says, this is like going on a trip and leaving everything except your coat and toothbrush. That's how Jesus is sending them out. And an interesting detail is that these four things are the same things that the Israelites were allowed to take when they fled out of Egypt. These four things. They're detailed in Exodus 12. If you remember the story in Exodus, that's the most important story of redemption in all of the Old Testament. So even this link is saying the level at which we are on in Jesus' mission is on the level of a redemption and a salvation like that of Exodus. Actually, it's greater. Because that was an Exodus, a leaving of Egypt. This is an Exodus of what? Away from sin, death, the devil. Jesus is sending them out to go and proclaim to more captives that they too might have an exodus from sin. So it's a new exodus that's happening in, in a different form, but it is on that level of significance. This command by Jesus, though, is meant to do something to the disciples. It's meant to strip them of belief in anyone other than Jesus. It's stripping them of belief in anyone other than Jesus. It's teaching them full dependence on God, even for where they will sleep that night. When is the last time you've been in a place where you've thought, where am I going to sleep tonight? Jesus is calling them to that level of dependence on God. Rejecting unbelief, having true belief, embraces such uncomfortable dependence. Verse 11, Jesus implies, though, that they will be rejected. You see that there? If any place won't receive you or listen to you, you are to shake off the dust as a testimony against them. Shaking off the dust was something that Jews would typically do before they'd leave a foreign land. The point was, that land's so unclean, we're not even going to bring their dust back into our land. We're not even going to pollute God's country with the dust from that land. Well, Jesus' statement about the dust is actually 
very ironic. It should actually be shocking to us. Why? Because remember where they are preaching. They are preaching to ethnic Jews. They are preaching to the people that God has promised for millennia about a king to come to save them, about a kingdom of God being established. And yet, right, these people should be familiar with those promises of God. But Jesus is saying, the Jewish towns that reject me, you are to treat them as unclean, polluted foreigners who reject God. Jesus is showing that true uncleanness comes from where? From unbelief. The shaking off of the dust is not a final condemnation. This isn't a damning statement to them. Rather, it's a warning. They are shaking off the dust and they are warning. Reject unbelief, not Jesus. In verse 12 through 13, see the marks of Jesus' mission, preaching in power over demons and to heal, but notice what they're proclaiming. There's an emphasis there in verses 12 and 13. They are proclaiming repentance. Now, belief and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Right? It's the same, two sides of the same coin. But the emphasis is here. Of course they're preaching belief, but this emphasis is, is upon repentance. They are in a land where the familiarity has bred contempt, unbelief towards Jesus. And so the chief need is repentance. In truth, the call to believe in Jesus is always a matter of repenting of something, always turning from one thing to turn to Jesus Christ. It's turning from something to someone. It's clear in this text, preaching about Jesus will either bring dead sinners to life or it will harden dead sinners in the ground. In the West, in the West, we typically love the underdog, don't we? We love the underdog. Now, an underdog is, is right, the team or the person in a, in a contest uh, that, we, well, that we expect to lose, right? whether it's sports, politics, games, whatever. And even in, in college basketball, which I know uh, a number of us are very excited about March Madness, the greatest sporting event of the year, um, when underdogs win consistently, go Iowa State, right, Pastor Matt? Uh, when underdogs win consistently in that tournament, they're often called a Cinderella, right? from ashes to glory. Well, this theme isn't foreign in the Bible, right? David and Goliath, come on. Even Jesus himself, if we think about it, a lone Jewish man in nowhere land coming to fight against who? Sin, death, devil? Seems like an underdog story. You might expect the next thing for me to say in light of this text is that this text shows that you are an underdog. You and I are underdogs that Jesus uses to extend his kingdom just like the disciples. It's not the point of this text. It's not what this text is about. The point of this text is that when Jesus comes preaching, even through rejection of those who should believe, even through imperfect messengers, you are to repent of your sin. You are to turn from unbelief and believe in Jesus Christ the King. See, Jesus' mission through the disciples has been so successful for 2,000 years that we sit a very far place away from where they preached and we hear the gospel. We face the same decision, embrace unbelief and reject Jesus or reject unbelief and believe in Jesus. The mission will not be upended by you. It cannot be. The only one upended by rejecting Jesus is you. 
See, you and I are not underdog stories seeking to fight a Goliath of sin in front of us or Cinderella's hoping the fairy godmother will take us to the ball. No, the message to us is is we're not underdogs. No, we're underground. We are dead in sin. We cannot come to life unless the Savior calls, unless the Lord speaks. And Jesus recruits and uses even imperfect messengers with such a powerful and perfect message that it calls you and I out of death into life, not underdogs, dead in sin, brought to life by Jesus Christ himself. We are to to hear, to know, and to actually experience the refreshment of repentance, of embracing faith in Jesus Christ. In our culture especially, repentance is seen as this big, bad, aluminum bat beating you until you submit to Jesus. That's how we view it. But that's not what repentance is. Repentance is actually a gracious call. It's still today. You can turn from the thing that inevitably will destroy you, even good things that you love too much. You can turn from the something to the someone. You can leave behind contempt and dislike and dullness that you see in Jesus. And you can come not with shallowness but with richness to faith in Jesus Christ. Because it's a true relationship with the God who put on flesh, who enacted the mission. The fact that Jesus stands in time there is God saying, I love you. God has sent a savior there, even if he's rejected, to come, to die, to rise again for you who believe in him. Perhaps this morning you may be someone who has grown, excuse me, grown up outside of the church and, and this is all new. Right? The call to you this morning is to reject your unbelief and not Jesus and you will marvel. You will marvel at the peace, the joy, the love, the forgiveness that you may taste in, in God making you his own. Perhaps you may be someone who, who has or is growing up in the church and you are familiar with Jesus. You know the stories of scripture, but functionally you live day to day with almost every area of your life having little prayer and even little or less Bible reading. You do not think about the Lord, let alone repent of any sin, confessing it to anyone else a terrifying ordeal for many of us. The call for you this morning is a gracious one. Come and repent. Turn for living for self. Turn from unbelief. Jesus Christ has come for you. The mission was sent, has started. Come so that he might not marvel at your unbelief, but rather you'd marvel at what he's done. Today is the day to not harden your hearts, but to hear that sweet call, knowing that you still have today to reject unbelief and not Jesus. His mission is unstoppable because his love is unmatched. His love is unmatched for sinners like you and me. You can ask Jesus Christ to do this work in you. He will complete it. To close, there is a a gem in this passage that we can't miss. So, in closing, look back at verse 3 in that list of Jesus' brothers. Take note of two names, James and Judas. Judas is not uh, Judas Iscariot. But these are brothers who at the time scoffed at Jesus. Even in Mark 3, it says that they thought Jesus is out of his mind. They do not believe in him. He's so familiar. How much more familiar can you be than a brother, right? Judas... Uh, what is, who does Judas become? Well, later on, he believes upon his brothers. And in one of his writings, he calls Jesus this, our only master and Lord. 
he writes that in the book of Jude. The book of Jude is written by Judas. James, you might well guess now, is the writer of the book of James in the New Testament. In James 1.1, he calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, his brother. James also became what seemed to be one of the chief elders in the church in Jerusalem in Acts 15. Right? From someone who embraced unbelief in Jesus to the leader, the chief elder, if you will, in Jerusalem. Amazing. Unbelief need not be our final destination. James and Judas were among those who thought Jesus crazy and rejected him. But the call for repentance in time produced in them a rejecting of unbelief, not Jesus. And by the grace of God, by the grace of God, let not your familiarity produce faithlessness. Instead, today as you survey your life, do so while also surveying the wonderful cross. Readying yourself to repent so that you would know And not just know, but have Jesus Christ for yourself as your king, as your savior, just as James and Jude did. His unstoppable mission was set upon saving sinners like you and I. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you loved us so greatly. It says in John 3 that you sent your one and only son. A mission was begun, was planned, in eternity past, and it could not be stopped even by those who would seek to reject you. Oh, Jesus, let us not be those who reject you. Let us know the joy of that mission succeeding even in our own life by trusting in Jesus Christ. Do the work that only you can in our hearts. You are forever beautiful, forever glorious, forever powerful, even when our eyes fail to see it. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.